Well, two terrible texts this morning from Mark and from Esther, and then one psalm that's rather puzzling, uh, but celebrating God's salvation. And I'll address the gospel text at the Lunch and Learn very briefly. I'm going to talk about Esther this morning. And I can't read or hear the story of Esther without remembering Mr. Goldberg. He made such an impression on me many years ago. I met him in a French class at St. Mary's University. He was like his ancestor Abraham, old and full of years. He said he had learned his French on the streets of Montreal, and he wanted to learn better French before he died. Our professor called us all by our first names in their French form. He called Mr. Goldberg, Monsieur Goldberg. And when the celebration of Purim came around, the teacher asked Mr. Goldberg to explain it, and he did in English. Only Monsieur Goldberg could get away with speaking English in class. He told us the story of Esther, her uncle Mordecai, King Ahasuerus or Xerxes, and Haman. Except every time he could have said Haman, he said Hitler. The book of Esther sticks out like a sore thumb in the canon of the Bible. The hero of the tale is a woman, a strong, dangerous woman. The book of Esther offers no theology, no law or gospel, no mention of God at any point in the story. And it's not set in Palestine. Like the book of Daniel, the story unfolds in Persia formerly the empire of Babylon, where many of the people of Israel and Judah spent decades in exile. Esther and her uncle Mordecai are among the Jews who stay behind and prosper. There's a large and thriving Jewish community in the capital city of Susa. They are vital to the economy. The king can't govern without their support. Now, there's no mention of God, yet God's fingerprints are all over the place in events that we too quickly call coincidences. There are what we might have learned in English class to label ironic reversals. There's a a sleep disturbance and a convenient recovery of memory. So I guess Esther's tale is a lot like other biblical stories, except The laws of God and Moses are violated blithely. There's immodesty and immorality as a matter of course. And it's still the story of a woman who achieves her goal, saves her people by using her beauty, her skill at manipulating her husband, who's an egotistical rage addict. And in the end, Esther has a shocking thirst for blood. Esther's husband has the power of a king and the temperament of a spoiled child. Not a good combination. He acts on whims and he's easily managed by others. His chief of staff, Haman, moves him around like a pawn on a chessboard. Haman's an Agagite, a Canaanite, and his people and Esther's people have been enemies for centuries. Haman hates Esther's uncle. Mordecai. 
Mordecai does the king a favor, saves his life, and he gets a reward for it. And Mordecai won't bow to Haman, or Haman when Haman appears in public. So Haman gets the king to sign a decree, probably slipped in among a pile of executive orders, and the king has one hand raised with his signet ring to put his seal on each page and a cup of wine in the other. And it appears he's not really paying attention. The decree orders the death of all Jews, a holocaust in the Persian Empire, and the dates are set. Mordecai hears the proclamation. He goes to the palace to find Esther. Now, the lectionary just gives us a snippet of the story once every three years, and it skips the most important words. Mordecai tells Esther she must act to save her people. If she fails, he says, help may come from somewhere else. But he asks Esther to consider it may be that she is where she is, the king's newest and favorite wife, for such a time as this. Esther, Esther risks her life. Even she can't approach the king without an invitation. Uninvited, you come on pain of death. But she flatters her husband, says she wants to serve a banquet in his honor, an intimate affair, just King Xerxes, Queen Esther, and Haman. And we join them on the second night of the party, where Esther reveals her identity and Haman's plot against her people. Now, Xerxes is, is primed because he hasn't been sleeping well lately, and so he has asked a servant to read him to sleep, and one night the servant chooses the part of the royal log that tells the story of how Mordecai saved the king. But Haman has already prepared a place of execution. It's not a gallows, but a 75-foot tall sharpened stake just for Mordecai. And the king sends Haman there and gives Mordecai Haman's old job. But the king can't withdraw a royal edict, even if he didn't know what he was edicting when he edicted, so he issues a new one. He orders Jews, orders Jews to defend themselves and kill anyone who tries to kill them. Esther and Mordecai oversee the slaughter of 75,000 Persians, and just for good measure, 400 Canaanites, some of whom are related to Haman. And to this day, Jewish people celebrate these killing days in the Feast of Purim. So one modern Jewish commentator sums up Purim and all the other celebrations of the Jewish people as this. They tried to kill us. They failed. Let's eat. So I'd love to know what our church school teachers are doing with this story downstairs right now. So why read it at all? It's a horrible story. Well, how about this? It is a tale uh, about what has happened over and over again in history, not just to the Jewish people, but to distinct, more or less cohesive minorities in every 
part of the world, what has happened and what is happening today. It's also the story of, a, of the power of one voice raised in the right place at the right time to change the course of events, even in the face of great power and great evil. At such a time as this, this world needs Esther and those who carry Esther's spirit, who are willing to risk, risk everything, to speak truth to power for the sake of those who have no voice. Well, here's a little Canadian history for you. On Parliament Hill, among all the statues of men, and, and one queen and some mythical women, there's a monument unlike any other. Five women, none of them a queen or a mythical muse, five women from Western Canada. Two are seated, one is drinking tea, one stands tall with a newspaper in her hand, and the headline in gold letters says, Women are Persons. It started in 1927. Five women, accomplished professionals, Irene Parlby, Nellie McClung, Louise McKinney, Henrietta Edwards, and Judge Emily Murphy, drafted a petition to Canada's highest domestic court, acting asking if the legal definition of the word person in the British North America Act included women. And in 1928, the High Court said no. The Act, the closest thing Canada had to a constitution at the time, did not define or protect women as persons in their own right. On appeal in 1929 at the Privy Council in London, which was then Canada's highest court of appeal, the judgment was overturned. It was declared that in law, person meant women and men. Five Esthers. Their moment was two years long, but they didn't give up. And now remember Elijah Harper, 28 years have passed since he stood in the Manitoba legislature, eagle feather in hand, saying just one word, no, many, many times. To stop the provincial government rushing the Meech Lake Accord through the House. Why? He believed the document offered nothing to Aboriginal peoples. And he said if Canada was going to declare Quebec a distinct society, so should indigenous Canadians be declared a distinct society. Not much has changed since 1990, but that document was intended to close doors that probably should still be open. One moment, one image, an Elijah Esther moment. And at such a time as this, we need to remember that Esther's horrible story begins with the sexual exploitation of women. King Xerxes has been partying hard with his bros for six months. He's boasting about his number one wife, Vashti, and he wants to show her off to his boys. And in the custom of the time, that means she appears wearing only her jewelry. Vashti won't do it. Xerxes banishes her, and sets out to find a new number one wife. 
He holds a Miss Persia pageant, no swimsuits, no speeches. And Esther wins because she's beautiful. That's all we know about her until her moment comes. For such a time as this, men who exploit, demean, abuse women know instinctively that the best way to take and exert power over another person is to violate not just her body, but her mind, her sense of self, her identity, to reduce a person to an object. Vashti resisted. Esther took another path to assert herself. I know as hard as I tried, it was impossible not to hear at least some of Thursday's news from Washington. And truth be told, neither Dr. Ford's nor Judge Kavanaugh's testimony could have changed the predetermined result of the hearing. Until two women got into an elevator with Jeff Flake, a Republican senator, who had already announced earlier in the week how he would vote to send the judge's nomination to the full Senate right away. One of the women spoke. The senator looked away. 23-year-old Maria Gallagher, a mother of two, a survivor of sexual assault, dared to say, look at me when I'm talking to you. You're telling me that my assault doesn't matter. She said more, just a few more sentences. But Senator Flake went on to his meeting, shocked everyone, and announced he had changed his mind. And that led others to speak up, not just against, well, not against the judge, but in favor of a delay and an FBI investigation into the allegations against Kavanaugh. And that's really all Dr. Ford, the first accuser, was asking for. Over the past year, the words Me Too have taken on new meaning. As women of all ages, and some men too, have told their stories of abuse, of pain, of fear. And many, too many, have paid Vashti's price for their honesty. But many, many more have claimed Esther's courage, Esther's strength for such a time as this. But anywhere, everywhere, it begins with one voice. Amen.